Our reading this morning is from Luke 14, 25 through 33. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to, and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build a house and was not able to finish it. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able, with 10,000, to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Would you pray with me? Uh, Lord, we invite you uh, into this space. Pray, Holy Spirit, speak to us this morning. Amen. More and more people these days are finding ways to make money online using social media, uh, gaining followers, uh, becoming influencers. Uh, an unusual approach to this was highlighted in the New York Times on Friday in an article titled, How to Make Money in Your Sleep. Apparently, uh, TikTok, if you're familiar, if you're over 30, you probably don't know what TikTok is. Uh, but a lot of the uh, teenagers here uh, know what TikTok is. It's an app, and kids like to uh, copy one another dancing to music using the app. But apparently, a new way to make money on TikTok is to film yourself or stream yourself sleeping. I don't get it either. Uh, apparently, uh, this is a, a growing fad. Uh, where uh, users are filming themselves sleeping at night. One 18-year-old named Oscar described his experience this way. Overnight, my video blew up. I got over 6,000 new followers. I went from 12,000 to 18,600 followers just from filming myself sleeping. Others caught on and have tried similar ideas. Uh, Joe, a 24-year-old streamer, decided to live stream uh, his white Tesla sleeping in the driveway overnight. <laughs> he taped his car sleeping, and uh, he actually accrued $50 worth of digital coins doing that. Now, I have to admit, I am speechless. I do not get it. Uh, I am baffled, just as you probably are. I don't understand how this works, but somehow... People are making money doing it. It's a counterintuitive way of gaining followers. And it leaves us scratching our head. Uh, but it brought to mind for me Jesus' approach 
in our passage this morning and how he chose to speak to this large crowd that was following him. And in fact, I want to say this first point in your sermon guide. If you have it, you can pull it out of your bulletin. It's the first point I want to make. Jesus was a terrible recruiter. Jesus was a terrible recruiter. Now, uh, let's look at this. We're told at the very beginning of this passage in verse 25 that a great crowd was following him. A great crowd. If you recall, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He was up in the northern part of uh, Israel at this time, in the Galilee area, and he's making his way to Jerusalem. And a great crowd is following him. Here Jesus has a golden opportunity. A golden opportunity to gain uh, and recruit followers. And what does Jesus do? He squanders it. He squanders it. Uh, Now, he has spoken like this in what we find in our passage this morning. He said similar things earlier, but it was to a smaller group. It was to a smaller group of disciples in Luke 9. You may have remembered we covered it months ago last year. There in Luke 9, Jesus said this, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. There, Jesus was just simply speaking to a small group of disciples. But in our passage today, he has this large group. Here's his opportunity. Here's his chance. And just think with me the ways Jesus could have attracted the crowd. He could have said, follow me and you'll be healed of all your diseases. Follow me and you'll never go hungry again. Follow me and all your problems will go away. Follow me and I will make your life easy and comfortable. But Jesus instead does something that brings to mind here Dietrich Bonhoeffer's quote, and this is number two in your guide. When Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids him or her come and die. Now I have to tell you, that's a difficult message to preach because as a preacher, we want to attract followers. We want to attract people to our church. We want to have a message that people can relate to and find attractive and inviting and comforting and encouraging. But here Jesus is giving us a different message. It's a hard message to preach, especially because I know that Jesus is calling me to die, just as he's calling you to die. Now, that there is this gospel called the prosperity gospel or known as the health and wealth gospel, and it's popular among uh, fam- some famous preachers who, with large churches and large followers. And they'll promote this message that Jesus' atonement not only removes all your sins, but it removes your uh, sickness and removes your poverty from your life, that if you have strong enough faith, God promises to bless you and increase your health and wealth. Some have called this prosperity gospel a cotton candy gospel because it's so sweet to the taste. 
And, and, and so many people want to hear it. And Jesus could have given a cotton candy gospel here to this large group. I mean, they saw something unique in Jesus. They saw something special happening here. And so they decided to follow him. They were curious. They were wondering, what's going to happen as he gets closer and closer to Jerusalem? People began wondering, is he the Messiah? Is this a, a, a military parade, a march uh, towards Jerusalem for Jesus to finally kick out the Romans and take over? Is this what Jesus was up to? But what we find here is not a military parade, but a funeral procession as Jesus is making his way to the cross. And he has a very different message to preach to this large crowd. And so Jesus makes his sales pitch. And here's uh, sales pitch number one. And this is in your sermon guide uh, number three. Jesus says this, To be my disciple, you must hate your family. To be my disciple, you must hate your family. Now that seems at odds with... uh, a message that Jesus had preached earlier on in Luke in chapter 6 where he told us to love our enemies. We're, we're supposed to love our enemies, but we're supposed to hate our families. Well, that doesn't make sense. But of course, Jesus here is using hyperbole here to capture the seriousness of his message and what he's calling us to. To hate doesn't refer to actually having hateful thoughts and feelings towards your family. He's simply saying your greatest priority needs to be me rather than your loyalty to your relatives, whether it's your husband or your mother and father or your kids, whoever it might be. Family cannot be your ultimate master. Only Jesus must be your ultimate master and Lord. And so it's really addressing what's the greatest love of your heart. It's what Jesus wants to confront you with. So you must hate your family. And Jesus gives examples of this earlier on in Luke in chapter 9, where a would-be disciple tells Jesus, I'll follow you, but I just need to go bury my father first. And another disciple says, I'll follow you, but I just need to go say goodbye to my family. And in both instances, Jesus says, no. No, following me is your highest priority. I come first. Betty Scott Stam was a missionary to China in the early 20th century. Now, she ultimately made the greatest sacrifice by giving her life for Jesus when she and her husband were killed by communist soldiers in a very tragic story. But before that happened, when she was 28, earlier in her life, in college, Betty wrote a famous prayer that I've put in your bulletin. The the whole prayer there is in your bulletin. And she reflected on her life and her calling to follow Jesus and her commitment to Him. She was giving Him all But I want to highlight these few words in her prayer, number four in your guide. She says this, I hand over to thy keeping all my friendships, all the people whom I love are to take second place in my heart. My friends, if you're a follower of Jesus this morning, can you say this? Can you pray this? This is what Jesus requires of you. 
And I think for many of us as parents today, the greatest challenge is whether Jesus is our ultimate master or our kids' schedule. For many of us, it's our kids who dominate our lives. We're guilty of this as parents. And so Jesus challenges us this morning. Are we going to let the world tell us how we're to schedule our lives and what are our priorities? Or do we have a different calling as followers of Jesus? Jesus says we cannot be his disciples if we do not hate our families. Here's uh, his second pitch, his second sale pitch, and this is number five in your guide. You must identify as a criminal. You must identify as a criminal. Now, this is where Jesus says in verse 27 that whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. There, that idea of bearing a cross, that's an identification of being a criminal because in the Roman Empire, that's what they did with criminals. They crucified them. It, it was actually an execution reserved mostly for slaves, mostly for the very lowest of the low. Now, we tend to think of this idea of bearing the cross as a burden, as heavy lifting, the difficult aspects of following Jesus, of being a Christian, that it takes a lot of work, that it's very exhausting. But Jesus is speaking of something much more difficult here than heavy lifting. You see, the Romans used execution as a way to not only kill someone, execute someone, but they used it in a very public way to shame that individual during their execution. Uh, today, we think of the death penalty, and it's done in a very private way. Uh, usually, a drug is administered, and, and, it, and it's, not seen, it's only seen by a few people. But in the Roman world, uh, everybody saw it. I mean, you were, you were crucified on a very busy road oftentimes so that people would go by and see you. I mean, the person would have been stripped naked, beaten, uh, hanging there for days, exposed, shamed. That's how the Romans used this act of execution. And Fleming Rutledge, the academic scholar, uh, wrote this about the Romans' use of execution in its relation to the Christian faith. She says this, The world's religions have certain traits in common, but until the gospel of Jesus Christ burst upon the Mediterranean world, no one in the history of human imagination had conceived of such a thing as the worship of a crucified man. This is what was so startling about the Christian message, about Paul's message of the cross, and why, why it was a stumbling block, is because no one imagined worshiping a man who would have been embarrassed and shamed in such a way. Crucifixion, this is number six in your guide, was considered the death of a nobody. A nobody. And yet to be a follower of Jesus, he's telling us here, you have to identify with a nobody. You must be willing to see yourself as a nobody. Russell Moore remarks that the shame of crucifixion was something like the shame we associate with being on the sex offenders list. 
And that's what Jesus is calling us to. Now here's uh, sales pitch number three. Uh, the last uh, pitch here, it's number seven in your guide. You must renounce all your possessions. You must hate your family. That was his first pitch. You must identify as a criminal, and here you must renounce all your possessions. This is in verse 33. This is the end of the passage where Jesus says, Any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, this verb translated renounce, uh, it also can be translated say goodbye to, kind of break free from, get rid of. And so the idea here is uh, Jesus is addressing the hold our, our um, personal possessions can have on us, whether it's money or the things that we own. And Jesus is calling us to turn our backs, to say goodbye to these things, to renounce them. Uh, we see Peter, John, and James do that in Luke chapter 5. When he, Jesus calls them, we're told that they bought, um, brought their boats to land. You remember they were fishermen. They brought their boats to land and we're told that they left everything and followed him. You see, we see the model here. They left everything and followed him. So to be a disciple of Jesus, you no longer look to these things, your money, your possessions. You no longer look to these things to give you the fulfillment, the security that you long for. Instead, you find that in Christ. The author Mark Galley, he made this observation that he has lost count the number of times he hears Christians talk about how God has spoken to them or opened doors for them to, uh, to, uh, you know, to buy a larger home or to get a new job, move their families, to make more money. Various ways that God speaks to us and leads us to greater prosperity and wealth. But he has rarely ever heard of a Christian talk about God speaking to them, telling them to sell all their possessions and give to the poor, even though that's the very thing Jesus teaches. But that seems so extreme. And I'm not telling you to sell all your things and give to the poor. I'm simply challenging you with the words of Christ here. He tells us these things shouldn't have the hold on us that they do. He's challenging us to put our relationship with him first before the things that we own. Randy Alcorn, number eight in your guide, puts it this way. A disciple does not ask, how much can I keep, but how much more can I give? Is that your attitude? Is that your outlook? Is that your perspective as a follower of Jesus? You see, all three of these sales pitches that Jesus uses here, the terrible recruiter that he is, <laughs> It addresses our hearts. You know, does your family have a grip on you? Does your status and reputation have a grip on you? Do, do your personal possessions have a grip on you? Are these things blocking you from really following Christ? And you may have noticed that with all three, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciples. You cannot be my disciples if you don't hate your family. You cannot... Be my disciple if you don't bear your own cross. You cannot be my disciple if you do not renounce everything. 
And you may wonder, does that mean we're not allowed if we haven't attained that yet? And that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying this is the hoop you've got to jump over before you can be his disciple. He's simply saying this is point nine in your guide. You cannot be my disciple does not mean you are not allowed. Instead, it means you will not survive. You will not make it to the end of the race. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is why he uses these two parables talking about building a tower, talking about fighting a battle. You notice in verse 28 he says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? And then in verse 31, Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Jesus is trying to to warn us. He says, to follow me is a marathon. LA Marathon is happening today. That's the Christian life. How many just go and choose to run a marathon without considering the cost? And that's point 10 in your guide. Before you choose to follow Jesus, you must consider the cost. That's Jesus' warning to us. Hayden Robinson uh, tells a story of a tour that he led in Turkey of churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. And on the last night they were there, they were in one of the cities having dinner at one of the nicer hotels. And their guide is, is a Turkish man who had lived in the United States, so he spoke English flawlessly. And as they were eating, this, this man began asking questions, serious questions about the Christian faith. And Hayden said to him, if, if you're a follower of Islam and you died tonight, would you be sure you could stand in the presence of Allah? And the man said, no, there are five things that Muslims should do, and I've only done two out of the five. So I, I don't know if I would. And so Hayden began to talk with him about the gospel and the and the free offer of grace and God's forgiveness through Christ and, how, and the assurance that you can have from that gospel message. And they talked long into the night. And Hayden said to this man, he said, Look, you're serious about our conversation. I know it would not be faithful of me not to ask you if right now you would like to put your trust and confidence in Jesus Christ. And the man looked at him and said, You don't know what you're asking of me. He said, uh, do you know what would happen if I did that? If I announced it to anybody, my wife would leave me. My family would disown me. My boss would fire me. I may want to leave and go back to the United States. The government would not give me a visa. I'd give up everything. You get to go home tomorrow. I would not expect you to support me, and I would starve to death in my own culture. And as far as Hayden could could know, that man never made that decision to follow Jesus because he was counting the cost, and the cost was too much. And I wonder today, in the church here in America, maybe here at our church perhaps, this is point number 11, 
Are we guilty of making it too easy to be a disciple of Jesus? One commentator wrote it and put it this way, that in Jesus' time and in the early generations after him, to decide for Jesus usually meant facing rejection, ridicule, and tension. No one decided to embrace him casually. Today, many people assume they are Christians simply because they live in a culture grounded in Judeo-Christian roots. And so we, we really, I think we need to wrestle with this. Have we made it too easy? And maybe it's become too easy because we've so emphasized a decision that a person needs to make. Uh, you know, you think of um, wonderful, wonderful events like the Harvest Crusade that they hold at the Angel Stadium. I mean, all the people that come, and there's wonderful things that come out of that, of course. But could it be that when we emphasize so much a decision in a moment where we aren't really asking someone to consider the cost, pushing for a decision puts someone in a situation where they might make that choice but not consider, what's this going to mean for the rest of my life? And this is point number 12 in your guide. You see, Jesus is calling us into a relationship, not just a decision. You know, for many of us, the only difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is that a Christian goes to church on Sunday and, and goes to heaven after they die, but in every other way, there really isn't much difference. But if you're in a relationship with Jesus daily... There's going to be something very different about you, something unique about you. And that's what Jesus wants us to take seriously here. I mean, think about how, how much time you took to consider whether or not to get married, if you are married, or if you're considering being, getting married. Uh, you, you sat down and you thought, seriously, what will this mean for me? And that's what Jesus wants us to do as his followers. What will this mean for us, because Jesus wasn't concerned with numbers. He wasn't concerned with a, a decision in a moment. He was concerned with, with something that would last a lifetime. And this is point 13 here in your guide. Jesus wants lifelong, fully devoted followers. That's what Jesus wants. Lifelong, fully devoted followers. That's what Jesus is looking for. That's what he's calling us to. That's the pitch he's making, ultimately. And so we can focus on how, how hard or depressing this seems or, or that, it, that this is a gloomy message that Jesus is giving us here and it's so difficult and, and, and not something that we would want. But I... But I want to challenge you, I want to end with this, is I want us to seriously sit and consider not only the cost of following Jesus, this is point 14, I also want you to consider the cost of not following Jesus. Of not following Him. Irenaeus, the uh, early church 
theologian, wrote that the glory of God is a human being fully alive. The glory of God is a human being fully alive. And what I want to suggest is that maybe Jesus wasn't such a bad recruiter after all. Maybe Jesus was on to something. Maybe Jesus knows what being fully alive really looks like. And that maybe we have bought the lie that the world is selling us, that being comfortable and having a lot of stuff and, and being at ease and, and being able to, to check out and, and, and do these things that come from being in such a wealthy society, maybe those are the things that really leave us empty and ultimately is not what it looks like to be truly alive. I think Betty Stam, the, the, the young missionary that I referenced earlier, I think she says it well in this quote I want to offer for you. When we consecrate ourselves to God, we think we are making a great sacrifice and doing lots for Him when really we are only letting go some little bitsy trinkets we have been grabbing and when our hands are empty, he fills them full of his treasures. Do you see what she's saying? Is that the things that we think make life truly worth living are, are really empty. And Jesus is offering us something that will make our lives really worth something. And so you have to come to this place and consider that maybe when Jesus says to hate your family and to become a criminal and to renounce everything that you own, maybe that's the stuff that really makes life worth living. And that's the invitation Jesus is offering you. And so you ask, is it worth the cost? Well, if your primary concern is a comfortable life, if your primary concern is to be financially secure, if your primary concern is to be successful, if your primary concern is to be safe and protected, if your primary concern is immediate gratification, then don't follow Jesus. Don't follow him. But if you're longing for deep, a deep, meaningful relationship with God, if you're longing for life in all its fullness, if you're longing for true joy that is lasting, then friends, follow him. See your Savior going to the cross, calling you to come and die. And would you consider that that's where life can truly be found? Let me pray for us. Father, these are words of life that seems so counterintuitive. And I know for my own life, I still don't get it. I'm still scratching my head. And so, Holy Spirit, open us to a new way of living. We'll be taking the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Supper really is an invitation into this kind of life where we feast, Lord Jesus, on your body and blood. A symbol of your sacrifice for us and an invitation for us to live in the way you have lived.
to be your hands and feet in the world. And we feed on you because you give us strength. And so I invite you in this time, Lord, to encourage us in that journey. And may we celebrate together your goodness and faithfulness. Amen.